Good morning. It is time for more of Max Lucado's You Were Made for This Moment. Courage for today and hope for tomorrow. Act 1. Confusion. Faith in a faithless world. The couple sat wordlessly at the table. He picked up the lentil and lamb stew on his plate. He stared at the food on hers. You've not taken a bite, he finally said. You need to eat. I'm not hungry. He began to object, but then thought better of it. He looked at her young face, bathed in candlelight, silken hair, high cheekbones, brown eyes speckled with a hint of gold. Esther, he offered softly, this is the best plan. She raised her face to look at his. Moisture had gathered in her eyes, ready to spill. But they will know, they will find out. <clears throat> Not if you are careful. Say little, offer nothing, go unnoticed. Her eyes asked for help. Other people are adrift here in Susa. No one remembers Jerusalem. No one remembers the temple. Your parents, may their memory be blessed, lived and died in Persia. We will do the same. It's best to make the best of it. But he will demand so much of me. Mordecai ran his fingers through his gray hair and then reached across the table for her hand. We have no choice. The king has issued the order. The soldiers will come for you tomorrow. We cannot avoid the edict. Mordecai sighed and stood and walked to the window. From his house in the citadel, he could faintly hear the evening cries and see the flickering lights of Al Yehuda, the town of the Judeans, a segregated community of Jews. <clears throat> he often looked out over the village, but seldom vis visited it. Its residents didn't understand him. He with his, his place in the court. He with his buried identity. He with his hidden faith. And he didn't understand them. Can a person not manage more than one loyalty? A compromise here? A secret there? Fudge a few facts? Who's to know? Besides, Esther, he said as he turned to face her, this could be our opportunity. Who knows what doors will open for us? Yes, but who knows what we will lose in the process? She stood and joined him at the window. <coughs> Mordecai placed an arm around her shoulders and whispered, The Lord will be with you, as will I. Chapter 2. Don't get cozy in Persia. Blame it on the sudden warmth. Blame it on the welcome sight of buds on the trees. Blame it on the dash of young love. But blame it mostly on a serious case of stupidity. She and I were in college. We'd gone on a date or two and felt a spark or two. Spring was in the air. The gray sky had finally shed her cloudy coat. The Saturday afternoon sky was blue and the breeze was warm. We drove through the countryside with windows down and spirits high. Was a ride planned or impromptu? I don't recall. What I do remember are the fields of winter wheat, so lush, so green, so inviting. I'm sure the romp was my idea. I'm a bit prone to spontaneous folly. I once tried to impress a girl with a leaping, leaping plunge into a river, only to discover that it was three feet deep. Good thing I didn't dive. I sank up to my ankles in mud. But back in the wheat field, I, did I mention its beauty? An olive green carpet it was. Did I mention that romance was beginning to blossom? She for me, I for her. So when I suggested a barefoot scamper through the field, I was thinking hand in hand, skip and jump, and who knows, maybe a first kiss. I stopped the car. We peeled off her shoes and socks and jumped over the fence, expecting to land on the equivalent of, of a soft mattress. But alas, we'd been duped. Winter wheat fields are green on the surface, but rocky and sticky beneath. After three or four steps, we came to a sudden stop. She gave me a, what were you thinking, glare? By the time we retraced our steps, my ego was bruised as bruised as our feet. That was the beginning of the end for us. The day love died in a West Texas wheat field. Sounds like a country song. You've made the same mistake, not on a farm, but in life. You have been fooled, deceived, tricked, lured into a field of green only to realize it was a bed of thorns. Remember how the bright lights led to a lonely nights? How the promise of fast, 
fast cash led to dead and debt? Remember the time he lured you into his bed or she convinced you of her love? You didn't bloody your feet, but you broke your heart or drained your bank account, and I hope learned this lesson. Things aren't always what they seem. What's too good to be true usually is. Tough times can pour trigger deci- poor decisions. This is a word to the wise, and this is a relevant warning for those who are stuck in the winter. Tough times can trigger poor decisions. We lose our bearings. We forget God's call. We exchange our convictions for the bright lights of Persia. This was the temptation that faced the Jews. Here is the way the story begins. In the third year of his reign, Xerxes gave a banquet for all his nobles and friends. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the providence were provinces were present. Esther 1.3 Xerxes' excuse for his lavish event was to convince Persian nobles, officials, princes, governors, and military leaders to support his campaign against the Greeks. The citadel, his seat of power, towered over the city. It was visible for miles. Its immensity sent a message in these halls. Walk, in these halls walk an important king. Hear ye him. <coughs> Xerxes was 35 years of age and rich beyond imagination. His palace boasted hangings of white and blue linen, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Verse 6. The palace hall had 36 columns that stood 70 feet tall. Each column was crowned with sculptures of twin bulls, which supported the immense wooden timbers of the ceiling. Even the mosaic pavements were works of art. When Alexander the Great entered the Palace of Susa a century later, he discovered in today's dollars the equivalent of 54.5 billion in bullion and 270 tons of minted coins. Xerxes was not hurting for cash. He promised wealth and rewards to all willing warriors, and to prove he would make good on his promise, he staged a six-month Vegas extravaganza. For a full 180 days... For a full 180 days, he displayed the wealth, the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. It was a Mardi Gras of drinking and dining. Guests from a hundred posts and ports, officials, power brokers, and wannabes mingled, schmoozed, and indulged. Feasts on dozens of tables. Wine was water. Everyone imbibed as much as they desired. They drank some more. Six months of food, fine wine, fine food. Who's who? Pinot Nior, excess. Xerxes presided over the whole event. But toward the end of the carnival, the king's true colors began to appear. On his 187th day of feasting, when he was in high spirits from wine, he sent for Queen Vashti. A bit tipsy, Xerxes decided to show off his wife. She was lovely to look at. Apparently, he expected her to dance in front of his frat friends and leave them entranced in a cloud of perfume. According to the Midrash, an ancient commentary on Esther, Xerxes told his queen to enter the room wearing nothing but a crown. That detail cannot be verified, but this much is sure. He did not invite Vashti in order to hear her opinions on matters of state. He wanted to flaunt her in front of his poker pals. Persia was not a safe place for a woman. Females, including the queen, were property. Vashti spent most of her time cloistered in some corner, pampered and preened for her next appearance before the king. She was an accoutrement, nothing more, a trophy in his case. Her only function was to make Xerxes look potent and important. Boy, was he in for surprise. She refused to comply. Prance about in front of a bunch of bibulous males? No, thank you. Good for you, Vashti. 
The king became furious and burned with anger. A chuckle is permitted here. Big, strong, billionaire Xerxes, ruler of 127 provinces, mighty overlord who controlled the world, was undone by his wife. He'd spent six months whining, dining, and flexing his muscles, yet on the last night he was made to look like a namby-pamby in front of his drinking buddies. When the ruler showed off, his incompetency showed up. He was so taken aback when he called, that he called a committee meeting. He assembled his seven barely sober advisors and said, Duh, what am I supposed to do? Wiser consultants would have urged the king to settle the matter in private. They would have reminded the king that six months of wine can fog the mind and would have suggested that he let his brain clear a bit. <coughs> but Xerxes was blessed with, a cabinet mem- with cabinet members who were seemingly as dense and drunk as he. They huddled, strategized, strategized, and gave this bizarre report. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Verse 16 and 17. I smell fear in those words. Fellows, we've got to act. Something has to be done. If not, the world might spin off its axis. Women will be thinking for themselves. Men will need to be kind to their wives. Daughters will envision a life outside the kitchen. How to avoid such a tragedy? I know. Banish Vashti. Let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. On what planet were these men born? Who spiked their wine with silly juice? Were they really so blind, so arrogant, so out of touch with human nature that they thought an edict would engender the devotion of a gender? And these men oversaw the running of the largest empire in the world? A bunch of locker room punks is what they were. Xerxes' display of importance, party, possessions, power, became Xerxes' display of ignorance, temper, indecisiveness, and folly. (laughs) For all his strut and swagger, Xerxes was nothing more than a misogynist chump. Do you see the irony? Do you shake your head at the folly? Does the response of Xerxes cause you to roll your eyes in disgust? If so, the mission of the author is accomplished. The story of the insolent Xerxes and the story of my romp in a winter wheat field posit the same possibility. What if the glitz and glamour are only folly and foibles? What if the lures of lights is a hoax? All the red carpets, all the social media pictures, all the fancy parties and invitation-only clubs. What if all the whoop-de-doo and la-de-da are one big field of winter wheat? Don't romp in it. <clears throat> don't fall for it. Don't buy the line. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bluff. Don't get cozy in Persia. Stay faithful to your call as a covenant people. Let's widen our lens for a bit of context. Do you have time for a few paragraphs of Hebrew history? When God called Abraham out of Ur, he made a covenant, a promise that Abraham would be the father of a holy nation. I will bless those who bless you, and I will place a curse on those who harm you, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12.3 Exactly how would God bless the world through Israel? First, they would model a way of living that reflected the glory of goodness of God. Unlike the depraved, promiscuous, promiscuous, violent Canaanites who surrounded them, they would worship their maker, love their neighbors, and honor their families. Second, they would provide a lineage through whom Jesus Christ, the greatest global blessing, would be born. The children of Israel would be, were the curators and caretakers of God's covenant to Abraham. For this reason, they were to remain separate, 
different, holy, set apart. They were not to permit permitted to marry non-Jews, worship pagan deities, or embrace the pagan culture. They were had distinct ways to worship, live, and love. Did they succeed at being separate? Sometimes marvelously so. Think Joshua inheriting the promised land. Sometimes miserably no. Think the long line of corrupt kings, each more wicked than the prior one. Eventually, the people so forgot their God that he used exile to get their attention. In 586 BC, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and deported about 10,000 of the city's elite. In 539 BC, the Persians sacked the Babylonians. By the time we meet Mordecai and Esther, the Jews were three generations and more than a thousand miles removed from their days in Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine that any of them recalled life in their homeland. They were encircled by Persians. They daily heard the footsteps of the soldiers and the wheels of the chariots. Merchants did business business with non-Jews. Farmers sold their produce to Persians. They lived amid the opulent wealth and fragrant temples of foreign people. What's more, the truly zealous Jews had been taken had taken the opportunity to return to Jerusalem either with Zerubbabel or with Ezra. The Jews who remained in Persia chose to remain in Persia. <laughs> Exile had been kind to them. <clears throat> They had good jobs, secure positions. Some were more Persian than they were Hebrew. To enjoy the success and wealth of the people of Susa, all they had to do was play their cards right, abide by the rules, and fade into the fabric of the culture. Unlike other books in the Old Testament that describe the Jews settling and settled in the Promised Land, the book of Esther depicts a people who are distant from their land. Jerusalem was so far away, and Persia was well, so relevant, so lush, so inviting. It was a gigantic wheat field. The author didn't use my metaphor, but would have appreciated it. The point of the first chapter of Esther is simply this. Persia is lying to you. Do we need the same reminder? The assignment given to the Jews has been passed on to us. God displays his glory and goodness through the church. As we worship God, love our neighbors, and cherish our families, we become billboards of God's message. We too are caretakers, caretakers of the message of Jesus. He was born through the lineage of the Jews. Today he is born through the lines of the saint of his saints. As you and I live out our faith, he is delivered into a faith-famished culture. We have the hope this world needs, but sometimes we forget our calling. We need this reminder. Persia is lying to us. I don't mean to be blunt, but then again I do. Billion-dollar industries are coming, coming, conning you by luring you into lifestyles that will leave you wounded and worry. Examples. Try this one on. Pornography is a harmless expression of sexuality. Really? It is, an addictive, it is as addic- addictive as drugs and alcohol. It changes the makeup of the brain. What about the sex trafficking it encourages, the violence it engenders? Yet the message that porn peddles whispers to the unsuspecting is... It won't hurt. It's just sex. Liar. Or this. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. You are what you own. So all, so own all you can. Take on the liability. Borrow the money. Saddle yourself with a budget-busting mortgage. It's worth it. The average American household carries more than 145000 in debt, including nearly 7000 in credit card debt. We worship stuff, hoping stuff will bring life. But your maker, he tells you the truth. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and must destroy, moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Matthew six nineteen through twenty. Here is one more falsehood: a few drinks take the edge off the day. What could be wrong? According to the marketing machine behind the in- liquor industry, the answer would be nothing at all. <laughs> Enjoy the high life, says Miller Beer. Find your beach, says Beckon's Corona Extra. The happiest hour on earth, boasts Jameson Whiskey. A shot of adventure, claims Jose Cuervo Tequila. Yet underneath the slick advertisement lies an ugly underbelly of alcohol abuse. 
Excessive drinking takes its toll on bodies, mental health, marriages, work, friendships, productivity, and pregnancies. A list of lies could go on for chapters. Deceptions about identity, race, pluralism, they are everywhere. And their consequences are devastating. At the time of this writing, depression is on the rise. Divorce filings are up 34% year to year. Calls to mental health hotlines have increased 891%. And the suicide rate is the highest it has been since World War II. One in four people ages 18 through 24 seriously considered suicide in the 30 days prior to being surveyed. How do God's people live in a godless society? Blend in and assimilate? No, this is the time to stand out and assist. We were made for this moment. During my Boy Scout days, I earned a first aid merit badge. I could be counted on to wrap a sprained ankle or bandage a scraped knee. During one of the day-long jamborees, I was assigned to a spot in the first aid tent. Initially, I was thrilled. I wore a first aid armband and stood under a first aid flag. I felt important. But as I stood outside and watched activities, I began to feel left out. The other scouts were running, swimming, competing, and playing. And Max? I was standing in front of the tent. I wanted to remove my armband and join the fun. A scoutmaster heard my complaint and reminded me, You have a special place here. You need to be different. This tent is the place for hurting kids. So I kept my post. Will you keep yours? This is no time to play around in Persia. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You were made for more than moody kings and flashy parties. You were made to serve the almighty God with and to be a temple of his Holy Spirit. Persia offers nothing. Hollywood can't satisfy your needs. Madison Avenue can't makes big promises but leaves people naked of hope. Godless living is no life to live. Will Mordecai and Esther see this? Cast in a story of decadence, will they resist the lure? Which will triumph, faith or facade? The answer might surprise you. The answer might caution you. Heroes of the Bible don't always begin that way. Like you and me, they've been known to romp on the wrong side of the fence. I don't want to give away the details of the next chapter, but suffice it to say, our main characters are soon to have sore feet. That's the end of chapter two.